David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan, and he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament on the bow. It is written in the book of Jashar. A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad. Lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Mountains of Gilboa, may you have neither dew nor rain, may no showers fall on your terraced fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised, the shield of Saul, no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you. Jonathan, my brother, you were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kerry. Good morning, everyone. Please do keep your Bibles open at uh, that chapter. I'll lead us in prayer as we get stuck into it. Let's pray. Thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Scriptures, that you do so by the power of your transforming Holy Spirit that's at work within us. We pray this morning you would help us concentrate to tremble and rejoice at your word. And to indeed be transformed by it more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Although death is a huge part of human experience, it's often a difficult thing to know how to approach. Grieving for the dead falls into two broad categories, two kinds of sting that death usually inflicts upon the living. On the one hand, we mourn for what was, but now is no more. The loss of relationship, the loss of the good that the person had and did. On the other hand, there's the sting of the removal of possibility. If we have some sort of relational trouble with a deceased person, some level of relational tension. Perhaps we long for the relationship to develop beyond where it currently is because it's not ideal. Well, then death puts an end to that possibility, to that process. What the relationship once had a chance of being, it will now never come to pass. Our grief at the death of someone known to us is the grief of losing the good, no matter what, And it can also involve losing the potential of the good that we longed for. It ought to come as no surprise, of course, that the scriptures have very much to say about how we approach the death of others. Because unless you yourself die at a very young age, you will almost certainly have to deal with the stings of death many times over. As the church of God... What are we to keep in mind when it comes to this savage sting of death that invariably we'll end up facing? 
Well, today's passage has much to teach us, of course, regarding this topic that will at many times be highly relevant to each of us individually and also collectively. We're in the opening chapter of 2 Samuel where David has just learned that King Saul and his sons, including David's beloved friend Jonathan, are now dead. Even though David had not had a coronation, even though his kingship was only recognised in Judah, one of the 12 tribes of Israel as opposed to all the rest of Israel, in reality, now that Saul was dead, David was the new king over Israel. And David's first big public act as the new king was to show grace and compassion by teaching his people a lament for the death of Saul and Jonathan. So verse 17, David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. And he ordered that the people of Judah be taught this lament of the bow, which is probably the name as, as a song or, or the name for the poem. And it is written in the book of Jashar. Have you been reading the book of Jashar lately? No. Uh, it could also translate, and a lot of good Bibles will tell you this in their footnote, the book of the upright. It's just the Hebrew word Yashar, meaning the, the upright. Uh, it's possibly a collection of psalms and writings by important figures throughout Israel's history, uh, but it's, of course, very long lost to us now. But whether David realised it or not, he was actually teaching the word of God when he composed this lament, because whoever's compiled the books of 1 and 2 Samuel saw fit to include the full text in, uh, in these books. One of the reasons it's a gracious act of the new king is, of course, that a lament gives words to grief. A lament gives words to grief. Uh, the unique thing about humanity is we're created in the image of God, and God is a God who speaks. Speaking is actually a helpful process of, uh, for, for grief. And being able to express grief in words is not surprisingly part of the way God teaches us to approach the reality of death. So David begins the lament in verse 19 saying, A gazelle lies slain on your heights, Israel. How the mighty have fallen. If you've got an ESV, you won't have the word gazelle. It'll be something like glory or maybe a footnote that says a dignified person. Uh, the same word can mean either of those things, but it's the same idea. A good and praiseworthy thing is now destroyed, slain like an animal. Hence, the theme of the lament is captured in an expression that actually occurs three times throughout the psalm. How the mighty have fallen. How the unexpected thing has come to pass. How the thing that should not be has yet become the reality. Even though David knew that Saul would somehow be removed, the unnaturalness of death always seems to be a striking feature. I know we call it natural when someone dies, especially in their old age, but we rightly perceive that death is entirely unnatural, even when it contains elements of relief for those who have watched it come slowly rather than suddenly upon their loved one and, and taken them away. So David's lament then gives validation to the idea that we rage against reality. We speak in anguish about something that we don't want to happen, even though we know it has already happened. That's what he does. Verse 20, tell it not in Gath, 
Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. Now you and I already know, because we saw it in uh, chapter 31 of uh, 1 Samuel, and David almost certainly would also have deduced that the announcement has already been trumpeted in all those Philistine cities and territories. The daughters of the, uh, the uncircumcised are certainly already rejoicing that Saul has been slain. Yet in the face of what he knows to be reality, David still, in anger and in sadness, yells out, no, let it not be so. In our culture, we'd call this denial. But I don't think we'd ever want to call it wrong. The most dreadful example I've ever heard personally of this phenomenon was many years ago. A friend of mine who's also in ministry was comforting a family who very sadly lost a, a young child. And he said he knew that slow progress was being made when after six weeks, the father of the child stopped praying that God would resurrect the child from the ground and, and, and bring the child back to be with the family. And he began to accept what he already knew in his mind, namely that the child was truly resurrected to be with their Lord in heaven. But you'd never say that was wrong, would you? There's an appropriateness to raging even against reality when it comes for grieving the departed. And David continues to do that in the next verse when he pronounces a curse upon the ground where Saul and Jonathan's blood was spilled. Verse 21, mountains of Gilboa. Remember, that's where Saul was struck down. Mountains of Gilboa. May you have neither dew nor rain. May no showers fall on your terrace fields. For there the shield of the mighty was despised. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. Now, I don't think David literally had in mind that in this particular area there would be no rain, hence no fertility, a sign of the curse of God. Now, of course, God, if he wants, could hold off the rain. You can pray for that and God might want to do that. But I don't think that's the point. I think the idea is that we're to see this death as so offensive that we'd want to respond with calling down a curse from God on the ground. We do the same thing in the positive. You really like, you know, my friend's male, they really like some girl, I worship the ground she walks on, right? Well, something terrible's happened, I curse the ground that it happened on. It's that, that kind of thing. Now, one reason this case is actually particularly tragic is that Saul is no longer the Lord's anointed. In the original language, the word that you see there, um, verse, uh, 20, end of verse 21, rubbed with oil, talking about his, his shield, is literally anointed with oil. The word, Hebrew word being Mashiach, if you hear last week, that's what we translate Messiah, the one who God pours, you know, has some oil poured on their head to say that they're the king of Israel. So the, the idea is that it, poetically he is no longer the Lord's anointed. His shield is no longer rubbed with oil. Um, ideally, the Lord would rule through his anointed, through his Messiah. So when the Lord's anointed is dead, it's fitting that we associate that with, like, I don't know, a curse on creation itself. Which, by the way, just as a little aside, it's not surprising that when God's true Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, was actually shedding his blood, that creation itself displayed the signs of the curse of God. Remember, there was three hours of darkness, there was an earthquake, even the temple. I'm getting ahead of myself. Then we have, within this lament, some words of eulogy. 
Eulogy literally means to speak favourably or to, to praise something. The eulogy David gives, and you might have had this thought as it was read, is not at all a balanced assessment of Saul in particular. For as we all know, there are a great number of very unpraiseworthy things about Saul. But you see, a significant part of grieving for the dead is mourning the good that has now been lost. It's about mourning the good that has now been lost. The good that now is lost is actually a big part of the sting of death to which we are right in our grieving to give voice to. So from verse 22, the eulogy goes, From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and admired, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. Now, for the time and place, this is a very praising sort of a eulogy. If you remember that in this time and context, the job of the Lord's anointed was to rid Israel of the threat of conquest from her surrounding enemies, then you would see that bravery and the battle readiness of Saul and Jonathan, you know, the fact that they don't, they're not going to cower from the blood and the gore of war, that their battle ready was indeed a great thing, a praiseworthy thing. And hence, the loss of such qualities is seen as tragic. And so the command, verse 24, daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, and who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Now, of course, you and I know that the many shortcomings of Saul's kingship involved him taking rather than giving the scarlet and finery to the daughters of Israel, for example. Yet again, a eulogy is not supposed to be a balanced assessment, but something that gives voice to the good that has been lost. Saul did obviously provide some basic level of economic stability during his kingship, whether that be over all Israel or perhaps locally in Judah, I'm not sure. But he did provide some level of economic stability during his kingship, because he wasn't afraid to go into battle against the enemies of God's people. And with that, we come to what on first reading you might assume is the end of the lament. Because you've got the, the refrain there that you kind of started off with, how the mighty have fallen, and that would give a really neat and, and memorable closing to this psalm of lament, the first words in the, uh, verse 25. But it wouldn't be enough just to give voice to the communal grief that David's doing here. It's also right that David gives words to his own personal grief. Not so much in the death of Saul, significant as that was to him, but now in the death of his dear friend Jonathan. At the beginning of the lament, David said that a gazelle, or perhaps the glory, or someone glorious, lies slain on the heights. We're right to see that as referring to the Lord's anointed, so the death of Saul. But now, David makes it clear that his personal grief is, not surprisingly, over Jonathan. Continuing from verse 25, Jonathan lies slain on your heights. Same words as we saw at the beginning of the lament, just instead of the gazelle, it's Jonathan lies slain. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen, the weapons of war. Have perished. 
Now we know from the book of 1 Samuel that Jonathan was fiercely loyal to David. Even though he was the crown prince next in line to succeed Saul, he renounced his own claim to the throne and he made a covenant, an agreement with David who he knew would be the next king of Israel according to God's own heart. And yet he, like David, did not raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. He did not uh, attack his father. As a matter of fact, he remained faithful to his father Saul to the point of dying with him even in battle. Must have been a hard route for poor Jonathan because he loves David and he knows David's going to be the next king and yet his own father is the king of Israel and he honours God by honouring his father. In some ways he's actually quite exemplary to live and die the way he did. Now if I had to guess, I'd reckon David surely had in mind that one day he would be king and he would have the joy of having Jonathan, his good friend, serve as his right-handed man. Jonathan, the master of the the bow, would be a wonderful right-hand man for David. And the fact that he was a a wonderful friend would have made it an ideal circumstance in which David could look forward to ruling. David, no doubt, therefore, grieves the good of what was lost as well as the good of what might otherwise have been. I once attended a funeral of a man who died, likely from a heart attack, if memory serves correct. He was really close to retiring. And I remember that his wife said words to the effect of, I was really looking forward to that time together and now I feel robbed because of the timing of his death. And so even when death isn't cutting off the possibility of a more ideal relationship, they had a fantastic marriage from, from what I know, it still cuts off the possibility of enjoying that relationship longer, of seeing it bear more fruit. David's relationship with Jonathan was an ideal friendship and he rightly gives voice to the loss of potential enjoyment of having that relationship any longer. And therefore, friends, as an important aside, it's a dreadful thing that some people who have absorbed the current thinking of our rather debased culture, try to make the argument that David's words here imply he had a homosexual relationship with Jonathan, like you'll find on the first webpage that came up in my Google search on this issue. It is clearly a profoundly stupid argument Uh, The Levitical law, the law that David and all Israel knew, points out that it's detestable for a man to have sexual relations with a man as one would a woman. So if David thought there was even a possibility that the whole of Judah, perhaps even the whole of Israel, would read and understand his words here as as being, you know, of, of a sexual nature, his relationship with Jonathan, there's absolutely no way he'd have put such words in a psalm. What David is obviously speaking of is this wonderful thing that we used to be allowed to have called friendship. And it's really good. It's a gift of God. And the thing that makes it stand out in David's mind that he refers to it as being more wonderful than the love of of women probably, ironically, is the fact that there is no complicating sexual element as there can often be with a person of the opposite sex. Now, we know David 
is romantically inclined towards women. He actually has a number of wives, and I'm sorry to be the spoiler alert, but that's going to be his downfall. I'm sure you all know the story. We're getting there. Sorry. But I think the friendship element is precisely wonderful because it doesn't have that sexual stuff surrounding it. We all know this to be true. I love women and I have female friends who I, whose friendship I, I cherish highly. I love men and I value friendships of men highly. And there's just certain things that I'm going to do and say when I'm with men that I'm not going to do and say with women, unless, of course, it's my own lovely wife. You know, that, that's the, the right exception. And I've even read things by same-sex attracted Christians... Christians with an unwanted same-sex attraction, both male and female, and actually within the last year, who said that one of the most wonderful and helpful things for them have been the friendships that they've had with people, other Christians, of the same sex, where they yet understand there's absolutely no romantic element because, frankly, their friends are just straight, right? And that's been really helpful to them. And David is telling anyone who would listen, just as I think we ought to tell anyone who would listen, about the loss of a wonderful blessing from God that we all know as friendship. That's actually an important thing to do as part of the grief. He was my friend. She was my friend. But coming back to our passage, three times now we've heard the refrain, how the mighty have fallen. It's obvious that if David, the new Messiah somehow had the power to reverse reality, which he's already said he wants to do in some of the verses. If he had the power to reverse reality at this point, he most certainly would. And in fact, we're right to have that as a very strong thought as we read these words, because if you've got an incredible memory, you remember that all the way back in the opening of 1 Samuel, God used a downtrodden and largely insignificant woman named Hannah to give a prophetic prayer that would determine much of the history of God's people that we read about in these books. It's always like God to do that, isn't it? The insignificant person from Nowheresville, Hannah, whose womb is barren and he, he miraculously gives her the baby Samuel, he gives her the prophetic prayer that actually sort of programs the rest of Israel's history in many ways. I'll remind you of some of the words. In her prayer, and including in her praise of God amidst the prayer, Hannah said, for example, the bows of the warriors are broken. And how right she was regarding Jonathan, who was a skilled archer. But she also said, but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Two verses later, she said, the Lord brings death. But she also said he makes alive. He brings down to the grave, yes, and raises up. And perhaps most importantly of all, she finished her prophetic prayer saying, he, God, will give strength to his king and, uh, and exalt the horn, i.e. the power, because a horn means power, of his anointed, literally of his Messiah. Well, Jonathan loved David and had laid down his crown in order to honour him. If only David, as the Lord's anointed, had the power to raise up Jonathan from the grave so that he could then rule at David's right hand as David intended. But David, also being a prophet, not just the Messiah, but the prophet, did see what was to come, that Israel's ultimate Messiah would himself be raised and would also have the power to grant the resurrection to eternal life for all who love him. 
Jesus laments the reality of death even more than his predecessor, King David. And now that his kingdom has been inaugurated, and it's a permanent and eternal kingdom, it's only a matter of time before those who love him, even those who have fallen asleep in death, will be raised bodily to everlasting life. God's king, that is both King David and, of course, the one who he foreshadowed, King Jesus, especially laments the death of those who love him. And he will one day reverse the reality of death for them. Uh, most people that have been to both a Christian and a non-Christian funeral will testify that there's such a profound difference between the two of them. The Christian funeral is always so much more satisfying than a non-Christian funeral. And that's because despite the real grieving that the Bible rightly gives very raw expression to, we who know and love the Lord know that the relationship is not over. All that was good about them is not ultimately lost. In fact, all that was good about them is what remains and we'll get to enjoy it for eternity. Once I attended a, um, a funeral of a friend who had become a follower of Jesus but whose family and background were Islamic and so they had a Muslim funeral for this Christian man. And uh, thank the good Lord in his kindness, he allowed uh, me to do a eulogy at that funeral. That was the only gospel content. But uh, I remember they... Um, took the, the wrapped body of the deceased out of the coffin, smashed up the coffin, and then the imam, as they put the, the coffinless body into the ground, uh, prayed in Arabic, but then told us, we're praying that hopefully he was good enough for Allah to accept him. As the body was going into the ground. You'll see similar things, sadly, at a lot of Roman Catholic funerals and the unbiblical notion of purgatory, that the person somehow needs to pay off sin in order to... You know, get it is absolutely blasphemous and ridiculous and, and unbiblical. Those who love Jesus are those who have said, not my crown, yours, and they're the ones he goes, I will raise them up. There's no conditions there. It's not I will raise them up if I decide they've done some hard time first. He's a gracious and compassionate king, just like King David, only about a million times better. And Oh, yeah, he's God as well and he's perfect. The reason a Christian funeral is always so much more satisfying than a non-Christian funeral is despite the real grieving, we who know and love the Lord know that the relationship is over. Uh, sorry, the relationship is not over and that all that was good about them is not ultimately lost. In the case of King David, those who loved the king like Jonathan are those he deeply laments over their loss. In the case of Jesus, who's not just a Messiah, but the Messiah, whose horn has been exalted, those who love him will be raised up to rule with him for eternity. And love for Jesus isn't just to think highly of him or feel positive about him. There's lots of people who have that kind of love for Jesus. It's not real love to Jesus. It's to give up your own claim to the throne. It's to give up your own self-rule and to joyfully accept his rule, which involves, as we so helpfully heard in Mel's talk this morning, going this way and my rule, my own life. No, stop, repent. Jesus is the one who is my king, not me. Jesus says, those who love me will obey my commands and those who endure 
will also reign with him too, Timothy 2. For anyone who's here, by the way, who's not yet a Christian, if you're not yet a follower of Jesus, if you're someone who still holds on to your own life rather than giving it up to follow Jesus, what possible good reason do you have for not turning to him in repentance and faith right now? Finally, we who are in Christ are not spared from the stings of death in the here and now. But of course we are spared from the ultimate sting of death, namely sin, which renders us liable to the judgment of God. The fact that Jesus' death removes all penalty for sin, past, present, future, means that the real sting of death, namely facing God in judgment for our sin, is totally and irreversibly taken away. So whilst we grieve, sometimes deeply and bitterly, we don't yet grieve like the rest. David taught God's people a wonderful lament that helps us deal with grief. But on this side of the cross, the Apostle Paul has given us even better words with which we're instructed to encourage one another in the face of death. Rather than my usual practice of concluding my sermon with prayer, today I'm going to conclude with the very words given by the Apostle Paul to help us in our times of enduring grief for the dead. Let me read them to you. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 from verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen.